Welcome back to the Speaking and Communicating Podcast. I am your host, Roberta. If you are looking to improve your communication skills, both professionally and personally, this is the podcast you should be tuning into. And by the end of this episode, please remember to subscribe, give a rating and a review. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by an actual tech veteran. Literally, when computers were invented, his name is William A. Adams. He is an award-winning DNI innovator. He's an engineering trailblazer and a philanthropist. He's here to talk to us about Techquity and his company, Adamation, which is here to not only teach us how to improve ourselves and how to invest in tech and create generational wealth, but how business and society can collaborate to create a better world using tech. And before I go any further, please help me welcome William. Hi, William. Hello. Hello. And that sounds like a great intro. It's like, yeah, just nailed it. You have a lot of credentials behind your name. I'm even in the Computer History Museum, so I'm a relic. Wow. So you really are a veteran. <laughs> yeah, Computer History Museum in Silicon Valley. That is amazing. When did that happen? About two years ago, my brother and I did a seven hour long interview over two days to wow. capture our verbal history up till the present, basically. Mm-hmm. Early history in Silicon Valley as Black engineers and entrepreneurs. It's like the Silicon Valley version of Hollywood Walk of Fame. I suppose so. I mean, it's for geeks, but yeah, I suppose so. Awesome. Welcome to the show. I'm really excited. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Because like I said, you literally started long before most of us were born with computers. I don't know about born, but certainly before the Apple II existed, Mm -hmm. which is pretty early on. So right at the dawn of personal computers, um, I was 10, 12 years old. And what got you started on that? Because obviously back then it wasn't as mainstream as it is today. No. So back then, yeah, a lot of things we did not have. We did not have cell phones. We did not have the internet. We didn't even have uh, bulletin board systems. That came later. But we did have, um, that was the earliest uh, computer back then was the Atari game console playing Pong, if you've ever heard of that game. So that was the first experience that any consumers had towards computing. And I had an uncle, he worked for the Navy, and he so happened to have this thing called the Commodore PET, which is one of the very earliest personal computers before the Apple came along. And he said, well, how'd you like to have this? Because I'm getting this new thing at work. Who knows? He used to make missiles. So I'm getting this other thing. (laughs) How would you like to have this? And I said, sure, right? I'm the only kid on my block or probably my city that had a personal computer, which is a big deal for a little Ah. black kid, Mm. you know. But I grew up in Southern California in the heart of where we did aerospace, so Rockwell International, McDonnell Douglas and Hughes and all this. But I was the only kid in my block and I got this computer and here you go. Here's some books. And I just started coding. So just imagine this 12 year old William sitting in his room with this thing called a computer, typing up some code. You were coding (laughs) back then at age 10? Well, I was 12, but yeah. Yeah, I was coding. I had no teachers telling me how to code or anything. I had a book and it's like, I could read. So I figured it out. No YouTube videos, no nothing, no, no groups. No hangouts, nothing like that. 
That is amazing. Were you always the type of child who wanted to know, who always had a curiosity? Oh, yeah. So before computers came along, oh, I had a little chemistry set that I bought with my lunch money. I had a physics set. I had an electronics kit. I took my mom's car apart. You know, I, I fixed things in our house. <laughs> so I, I was that kid that was just like, what? If he does not blow up the house. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's considered be, a good day. Lucky. <laughs> It'll be a good day. <laughs> so yeah, I was, I was Mr. Curious. When you say you looked at books and you just started quoting, it reminds me, you know, the movie Hidden Figures. Yes. Octavia Spencer's character, when there was this computer, it wasn't her job. Remember, I don't know if you remember that scene. It wasn't her job, but they couldn't get the computer working and printing mm -hmm. out those papers. And she went to the library to read up on it and she fixed it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it was just like that. Now, probably the influence of my life towards this was my father was a typewriter repairman. That's the job mm. uh, he had. And so we had in our garage on his workbench some old typewriters and adding machines and stuff like this. So that was probably my first inclination that there's like this mechanical thing that you can do stuff with, right? And since I didn't know what computers, because we didn't have them at the time, it was at least this. And then when computers came along, it's like, oh, it's that. Plus, you can actually make this machine do stuff, mm -hmm. right? So that's how I probably got really interested in the first place. And the, I was always into tinkering because we had this stuff in the garage. And then that tinkering just turned into electronics, tinkering and software and computers. Right. So you were an advisor to the Microsoft CTO. That's running way, <laughs> way into the future. Yeah, so in 2017, okay. it was the year that Microsoft bought LinkedIn. And with that came Kevin Scott, who was the VP of engineering at LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And as he came to Microsoft, they said, oh, Kevin, we want you to be our CTO. And at that time, we didn't have a CTO. And just to back up a little bit, I joined Microsoft in 1998. Right. So it's been a minute. He's uh, the CTO, and I got this email from someone saying, hey, would you like to interview for this position of technical advisor to the CTO? And honestly, I thought it was one of those scam emails. Oh, yeah. here. You know, I was like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, it's not a job you apply for because, it, at least at that time, it was uh, your name is in some hat because somebody recommended you, and they pull your name out, and, mm. and there it is. It's like, okay, we... And so I talked to Kevin and he hit it off and he said, okay, I want you to join. So I helped set up the office of the CTO in terms of like, well, what is the role of a technical advisor and what kinds of things should we focus on and how should this office run and stuff like that? So I helped do that for about two years. The role of technical advisor is similar to the role of a Supreme Court, the people that help the justices. You're the one who goes off and reads a bunch of stuff and synthesizes and says, here's an opinion. And then they do whatever they're going to do with that. But your job is to help synthesize the wealth of information that's out there and bring them something. It might be a specific area or it might be broad. Like, oh, here's what we should do in AI. So, yeah, I was the first technical advisor for Kevin Scott. And now the, the office has grown to be much bigger than that. And I'm no longer in that office, but I'm still that tech advisor kind of person, right? right. It's kind of like once you've been president, 
You're always president. Of course. <laughs> we always call you that, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The reason I jumped, which obviously we're going to get back to other parts of, and eras of your life. The reason I jumped is I'm looking at the 12-year-old and his first computer is yeah. the way you could have imagined how far this career was going to take you. Is it something career guidance counselors knew at the time was a possible career path? No, and certainly not for a young Black child. I mean, that's not something... <laughs> I don't even think I talked to my career counselor in high school. It's like, what's the point? The jobs that we were being steered towards at that time, and I was in high school in the 80s. If you go to college, maybe you're going to... You might be some sort of an engineer, maybe a civil engineer or something like that. Maybe electrical engineering and electrical engineering back then would mean working on power systems like the grid, not designing computers. We did have a, at that time, a burgeoning MSIT. IT was up and coming, but it really meant like typing in code, feeding decks of cards into a machine, getting printouts, that sort of stuff. Software developer at that time typically meant writing code to generate reports in right. COBOL, or maybe doing scientific computing and going to an engineering company like Rockwell International. But again, it's mostly mechanical engineering, drafting, design, computer-aided design was just coming around in okay, terms of using yes. the computer to actually do the drawings and stuff like that, just starting to turn. So it wasn't quite a career yet. You are very tech, and yet you've been working in the diversity and inclusion space. Yeah. How did you not say, I'm a software engineer, this is all I'm going to be and I'm passionate about. How did you then decide this is also going to be my focus? It was a journey. So for all of my life up until 2005, I was very much the in my own space, blinders on, software, 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 the code is all that matters kind of person. Oh, am I black? Who cares? You know, code, 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 right? complete blinders on. And it was only the algorithms that mattered to me and getting that next feature and whatnot. So I was completely oblivious to what was happening in the world. 2005, I'm now 40. And so it's beginning a midlife crisis, right? I'm going through <laughs> the a sports car? Almost. So <laughs> I, I'm getting divorced. I have the one child. I'm on the way to India to work for Microsoft to train our engineers. But I'm sitting on a beach in Hawaii mm. and I go, well, all right, it's, it's midlife crisis time. I'm going to own my midlife crisis. I'm going <laughs> to steer it the way I want it to be. So I go off to India. I did not get a sports car. I got a motorcycle. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I learned to ride a motorcycle in India. I lived there for three years. And this is my awakening. I went to India literally almost naked, just with a backpack and a couple of laptops and nothing else from my past life. So it was really a, an opportunity to go, who am I? What are my values? I can't lean on, hey, I have this car. I have this house. It's like, none of that defined me. These people don't know any of that. Right. Who are you? What do you stand for? What are your ethics? What are your morals? India is a great place to go through that sort of a transformation because it, you see everything, right? Poor people, rich people, injustices, big hearts, all religions. You see it all. So it's really a place to crack you open emotionally and figure out what's inside. So this is what happened to me. And then I trained a bunch of engineers how to be better engineers over the next three years that I lived there. And then I came back to the U.S. And then in 2015, I had this, 
not epiphany, but it was just a, okay, I've been, I've shipped code a million times now. What next? And I actually asked one of our VPs, you know, what's a big business challenge? And he said, well, you know, there's this whole diversity thing. I was like, oh, let me go check that out. Now, keep your mind. So my mind is a little bit open because I had the whole India experience and I'm midlifing it. This is 10 years later. It's 2015. We're not hiring women and minorities. And we haven't been for decades. (laughs) And so this whole thing about it's a pipeline problem and qualified, blah, blah, blah. It's just a bunch of red herrings. The problem is we just don't know how to hire them and we don't want to hire them. (laughs) that's the problem. So I just set about creating a program that says, well, let's forget that. We're going to hire these people. We spent millions of dollars on pipeline program, but nothing on actually hiring people, right? Mm -hmm. And so I changed it. And I said, we're going to do this apprenticeship because that's what's missing. That's the missing piece. And really what I was doing was making it possible for my peers to find an acceptable path. There was nothing wrong with the talent. The talent was always good. It was always out there. We're just ignoring it. So I was setting us up. And I could do this because I was in a position of high credibility at that point. Right. Right. I delivered software. I'd proven myself as an engineer. I didn't stand up and say, hey, everybody, I'm a black engineer and look how good I'm doing. That had nothing to do with it. I was just good and credible. Yeah. I had a Rolodex that I could tap into and say, hey, white leader in a position of power who can make decisions, why don't you hire five of these people? And they go, well, we trust you. So, okay, we'll try this out. That's how it started. We started with a cohort. Then they said, okay, well, that's pretty good. Keep going. We only hired two ladies out of eight in the very first cohort, but that was enough, 25%. They weren't expecting it to get any better than that. And they were okay with that. These days, we hire probably 80, 90% of the people that go through the program. So it says good, if not better than college hiring. Mm. All you have to do is name the number of people you want and you'll get that number of people hired and they're good. So started with just saying, we need a cohort model. We need to go to coding academies. We need to look at moms who are returning from work. We need to just think differently. We need to change the interviewing process. And we need to give them this apprenticeship because then they'll be on an equal footing with the college hires who always have an internship first. That's how they get hired, right? So we did all that. And then it just turned into cohort after cohort after cohort to the point where now it's like, it's a federally recognized apprenticeship program. My co-founder is off to the White House meeting up with Joe Biden. So it's like, Okay, we've changed the way that our industry looks at hiring in these pipelines. And so goes Microsoft, so goes the rest of the industry, right? Because we have lots of customers and they look at us and they say, well, how do you do it? And then we say, well, we got this thing. And they say, okay, how about we just pay you for that? That's how it got started. After the first cohort, it was still an engineering challenge to me because it was like, oh, how do you crack this? Well, you know, you got to find the people and you have this cohort thing. You know, it's just mechanical. But after the second cohort, I was like, huh, this is serious. This affects people's lives. And this is where I truly understood the intergenerational transformation that it has on families and communities. Because you take the single Black woman as a child, she goes through the program, she gets the $150,000 job. She's now on a track, whereas her child is now going to go to a better school have a different outcome than her, have better outcomes for herself and probably get into the same high-tech path for herself. 
And that formula was repeated over and over and over again. And I had so many emails of people saying, you have changed my life. Wow. And that's different from what you see from your typical college hire. The college hire expects this life. Their parents had this life. Their cousins had this life. They're going to get this life. And they're going to be like, yeah, of course. Mm. But these people didn't have a chance till there was an intervention that said, wait a minute, here's the path. Let me let you in on the secret. So this is the transformation that I went through is like, oh, it's not just that I can do this. I must do this. As I like to say, this was my civil rights moment. And now I'm trying to go on and say, well, there's still more to do because I'm not dead yet. So transforming lives. Yeah. Yeah. I had a guest. He is pushing the alternative to college, which is blue collar jobs Hmm. and all the possibilities there because he's been in construction, I think, 35 years. At first, I thought, oh, it's, the, it's either that or college. He said, no, there are six other options. Mm, I can believe that. Yes, because everybody thinks, you know, it's just college, college, college. The fact that you have this apprenticeship program, it can lead someone to making $150,000 a year without having had to acquire student loan debt, spend all that time. And sometimes, here's what happens, especially with tech, because there's always a new software program being developed and coming out yeah. every day. Sometimes you literally get left behind because you're learning things from four years ago. You yep. Microsoft, they're like, oh, no, we don't do that. Yeah, anymore. we don't do that anymore. Did you learn this latest thing that we came up with six months ago? Oh, yesterday. <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. We don't have time to wait for people to go through four years of college to learn the basic skills. It's like, the, mm, the world moves faster than that now. Right. What would you say are the benefits of a company embracing diversity? Well, this goes straight to the bottom line. So uh, companies talk about total addressable market. How many customers are possibly available to you? And you see this with cell phones. The total addressable market is everyone on the planet. So let's try to get cell phones into everyone. So you try to tailor it to all sorts of different segments, young people, older people, security people, you know, whatever. This culture, that culture, and you'll do all the right things for each one of those segments, right? African kids in Soweto are going to do some hip hop, something or others to sell it to the Nigerians. Mm. And they go, oh yeah, that was made for me because my favorite artist is hyping it and it's got the skins on it. And you know, it's all this for me. So diversity is about, well, how do you know that the kid in Soweto doesn't want this cell phone if you don't even have anyone on staff that can spell South Africa or Soweto or has even been there or even knows that it's not, that Africa isn't a single country, right? (laughs) Thank you for saying that. That feels so good right now. I've got my education. It's like, there's at least 54 countries over there. (laughs) If you want a wider addressable market, you need to get educated. If you're going to sell the farmers, you mm. need someone on staff that came from an urban environment. Yes. Right? So that they're bringing their perspective. And I'm not saying anything about skin color. No. Right? It's I'm not talking about DNA. Market segmentation, <laughs> like you said. Yeah. Right. It's about perspectives and experiences and all that sort of stuff. And the companies who are going to benefit uh, the most are the companies that know how to absorb those perspectives and incorporate it into their business processes and their sales processes and all the rest. The companies that are going to fail are the ones who are like, we've got a bunch of smart dudes from MIT. How hard could it be to understand the kids in South Africa? We'll just figure it out. Yeah, good luck with that. 
it's a total addressable market. And the world is so fast and changing so quickly that you can't lean on your big brains anymore. In the past, we could. We as Microsoft or IBM just say, well, you're just going to do it this way because this is the way it is. And how many options do you have? So it's critical. It's not even a benefit. It's a business requirement that you have to be more inclusive of diverse perspectives, or you're just not going to survive in the future world or even the current world, right? Hmm. Uh, that teamed up with the fact that talent is everywhere and doesn't want to move to your home and doesn't have to. You know, these things are at the confluence of this change where it's like diversity, inclusion, it's not an option. It's a requirement. If you work in isolation, you're just going to lose. That's all there is to it. Exactly. Because business is about people. Yeah. You're selling to people. People are making your devices, making your software, making your business run. So if you're not addressing the people and you're just mechanically turning the crank and you just think, oh, it doesn't matter who's there. It's just anyone who's got a brain. It's like, oh, okay. Good luck with that. Yeah. yeah. Because as we talk about communication on this podcast, you wouldn't know how to communicate, like you said, with the kid in Soweto. Yeah. You know absolutely nothing about them. And therefore, how are you going to market your product or tailor make right. it for them? Yeah. And I'll give you another example. I went to Nigeria in Kenya mm -hmm. um, a few years ago. And we were talking about Xbox. There's no Xbox sales there. <laughs> you know, and, and we're like, oh, I don't know. you guys don't like Xbox. And they're like, look, every time you turn on the Xbox, it wants to update itself. It wants to do a, like a 500 megabyte download. Well, the amount that I'd have to pay for those data charges is more than my monthly salary. Data access, even though they had 4G networks everywhere, it's still expensive. If your thing requires a 500 megabyte download every time I turn it on. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't know that unless we went there and talked to them. So yeah, you have to be there. You have to listen. You have to have those people on your team so that they would tell you and speaking of business, being about people, talk to us about your philanthropy work and how you merge that with your business expertise, how business and society can collaborate and make things. Okay. Better. There's probably two kinds of philanthropies uh, that I do. One I would just say is just gifting because I'm a human. And I'll give you an example of that. My kid's school, last year I gave them $15,000. Mm -hmm. This is public school. The first year we're back to school post-COVID and they just needed stuff, you know, like microphones for the teachers in the classrooms and this and that and the other thing. And I was like, okay, I'm not paying for private school, so I'm saving $50,000 a year. I can give you $15,000. And so should all these other people that are driving up in Teslas and BMWs and Mercedes, right? Your public school, but that doesn't mean you have to be poor. You know, when you hear those stories of teachers don't even get crayons and pencils for the yeah, kids. Yeah, it's ridiculous, right? Yes, parents right. can contribute a little there when they go to Walmart, just buy a pack of pencils. Yeah, exactly. I, I talked to the principal the year before, a couple of years before that, and she said each teacher spends probably $500 a year on school supplies. Wow. And they don't get paid a lot. They don't get paid much. <laughs> so I created gift certificates for each of the teachers in my son's kindergarten grade at that time. I gave them $500 gift cards wow. because it's like, why are you paying for my kid's education? 
So that's gifting. And I've done stuff with my family in India and other people, like my sister-in-law said, hey, brother, a friend of mine whose mother has cancer, she needs an operation, she needs this many thousands of dollars. Here you go, right? This is just humanity. Ah, so I can share. And then the other kind of philanthropy is more business focused. So this past summer, I gave a talk in Detroit, Black Men in Leadership. I offered a grant to people that came to this talk that I gave. One guy won this grant, his name is Rodney. And he has this virtual library uh, VR experience that is trying to work on his company. So I thought, well, that's great. And that could tie in with other stuff that I want to promote business-wise. So here's a grant. I'm not doing it as an investment. I'm not like, now give me 10% equity or anything like that. It's like, you just need a grant. Here you go. So I'm doing targeted things like that, where I'm trying to just foster and promote certain kinds of things that are headed towards this equity vision that I have. That's my philanthropic efforts. It's either just pure humanitarian gifting mm -hmm. or it's some focus towards drawing people towards equity. And speaking of equity, that's where you talk about how it, you can create generational wealth using yeah. the tech industry. You want to yeah. talk a little bit more about that? It's just this observation that I have. And of course, I've been in tech my whole life. So of course, I think everything is about tech. Um, but if you just look at the top Forbes list of top billionaires in the world, six out of 10 are through tech one way or another. So it's like, all right, just like in the early 1900s, that list would have included a bunch of industrialists and robber barons and, and whatnot, because back then it was about industrial revolution. Yeah. Right now, and for the last decade and probably for the next decade, it's about tech titans. But there's Elon Musk and there's Jeff Bezos is still up there and Mark Zuckerberg is kind of dropped down, but Steve Ballmer is still up there. You know, there's a bunch of tech dudes. And you say, okay, that's the tide. And that tide is still rising. All the wealth that the world is generating is coming through tech. There's a few exceptions, but mostly it's about tech. It's like, all right, that's the rising tide. If you want your tribe to rise with that tide, they need to be in boats that are built on technology, mm -hmm. right? You need to either have ownership in the stock of those companies or have stock in your own company that has a tech focus to it or leverages tech in some way. And if you don't have a boat built on tech, you're just going to drown by the tide. You'll get further and further away because the water's rising and you're like, ah, you're a tech consumer. Right. You're not going to get rich off of owning this. <laughs> right? You're going to get rich off owning Apple stock, yeah. right? Uh, because the stock is still going to be there once your salary is gone because you're retired or laid off or whatever, you mm -hmm. still have the stock. And that's what's going to carry through generation to generation. Right. And that's how wealth is developed. So yeah, Techquity is about saying, all right, if that's the way it is, technology is the main driver. Let's get more of our tribe into tech positions, whether you are working in tech, owning tech stock, building tech companies, owning patents in technology, all of those things that are equity in technology. That's what equity is about. Mm -hmm. And with the kids starting with Code Academy, so they can start at 12 like you did. Yeah. Okay. You start, you create a game. Don't just sell it off for peanuts. You know, just be smart about what you do with that. Licensing is better than selling. The money's different because it's like, Okay, if you license something, you're going to get smaller money, but for longer. Whereas if you sell it, you get... So even after you're retired, like you said, yes. Yeah, whereas if you just sold it, it's like, oh, you're going to give me 50000 for my game? 
Yeah, here you go, kid. Thanks. I'm gonna buy a car. And it makes fifty million dollars. <laughs> and it makes fifty million dollars, and and your car depreciates immediately. Hold on, just have a little bit of foresight for gratification, and you'll have a better outcome. Delayed gratification. You remind me of the story. I forgot the name of the boy, but he was in the original Lion King. He was apparently offered by Disney two million dollars or. 200,000 plus a percentage of what the movie was going to make royalties or something. I'll take that percentage. I, f- I forgot the name <laughs> of the kid, but against his wishes, he still went with his mom's advice. He was a minor, so the mom signed everything. But he really wanted the two million dollars because he thought, I'm a millionaire, it? So he got the 250 he and the royalties? He got the lesser money with the royalties. Guess what? Didn't the Lion King come back? Now he loves his mom more than anyone else. I mean, obviously he always did, but now that's where yeah. the wealth is. Yeah. And he would I have think blown up the money in two years. I think it's important. And this is why I do a lot of podcasts and on stage and all the rest and talk about equity is because our community we haven't had the hundreds of years of economic understanding and growth and development that the people around us have. So we oftentimes just think, oh, just get a good paying job. If you got a sixty to a hundred thousand dollar job, you're you're set. It's like you're only thinking about bills. We only Yeah, think you're thinking about, about bills. Can I pay it's, my bills and feed my kids. That's it. Right. It's like, mm, let me tell you what we could do that's even better. Mm-hmm. That will put us in an even be- that will put your kids in an even better position. Right. You don't want to just get enough so that you can pay to send them to college and then wash your hands, you're done and retire because your pension doesn't exist anymore, for one. Mm-hmm. So here's what you have to do so that you're okay, you're okay in retirement and your kids have a little something after you're gone. And then they can build on that. This is why I talk about it all the time. It's like, let's talk about money. <laughs> Lay the gratification. You're yeah. Right. So, so Mr. Adams, any last words of wisdom before we let you go? Oh my gosh, words of wisdom. Well, one thing people ask me is how to get started in tech. And I'll tell you, the it's all about passion. And this is true for anything. And I'm saying, oh, you should start a business. Like, well, even before that, because starting businesses is hard. Be mindful, purposeful, work with a purpose, be intentional. That's the starting point. So if there's any words of wisdom is find and define your purpose. Plot a course for your life. And this is, of course, hard to say to someone who's in their 20s, but plot a course for your life. And that's the way your life is going to go. If you don't plot a course at all, you'll just go wherever the wind blows and it's probably not going to be that great. But if you plot a course and the sooner you can do that, the better, you're probably going to have a better outcome than if you don't. Words of wisdom from William A. Adams, the tech trailblazer and CEO of Adamation. Plot and chart your course be intentional and mindful. Thank you so much for being here today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun. I know you're retired. So if if you don't want me to share your social media handles and want to be left in peace, we'll we'll respond. Oh, no, I do want to share. So So yes, please share all your social media. William-A-Adams.com. That's my website. Mm-hmm. All the socials are there, all the podcast thingies, all the speaking engagements, all the papers, uh, all my code. I'm still writing code every day. You'll find it all there. 
Dearest patient, indeed, if you're retired and you're still writing code. There's no retirement from code. I've been doing it since I was a lad, right? right. I'm not going to stop this until my fingers don't work. And then I'll use voice. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. William-a-adams.com is the website to find William A. Adams, who has been such a wonderful inspiration to us today. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.